0: Unmade. Welcome to the Unmade podcast, looking at media and marketing from an Australian perspective. I'm Tim Burrows. Recently, I published my first book, Media Unmade. It quickly became an Amazon bestseller. It's the story of Australian media's most disruptive decade. It's published by Hardy Grant, and you can buy it at all good bookshops and online. In the coming weeks. I'll be sharing the full audio edition of the book here on the Unmade podcast. Coming up is the next chapter. Now remember, only Unmade's paying subscribers get to hear every chapter. If you haven't already, you can sign up at unmade.media. As well as supporting my work as an independent journalist, you'll receive exclusive industry analysis in both written and podcast form. And once you sign up, you'll still be able to get our paid podcasts inside the app of your choice. It only takes a couple of clicks. Now, on with the book. Chapter 4. Who Saved Channel 9? In which 9 creates a ratings winner after years of big losers, dodges going into administration, and finds a way to charge viewers for content. It is a nerve-wracking morning. Adrian Swift, the former sports journalist turned TV producer, is about to find out whether sacrificing an exciting new career direction to rejoin a nose-diving TV network was the right move. It's just after 8:30 a.m. on Monday, the 16th of April 2012. Swift has completed his first mission as Nine's new Director of Development. He's in the office of Director of Television Michael Healy at the TV network's historic studios in Willoughby, Sydney. The two of them are waiting for last night's ratings. After more than five years without a big hit, Debt-Ridden Nine is running out of time. Advertising money goes where the audience is, and Nine Needs the money. Last night, The Voice, the expensive talent show Swift has been developing for the past nine months, finally went to air. The ratings email arrives. Anything above 1.5 million Metro viewers will do. When Swift and Healy see the result, they fall into each other's arms, weeping. Two years earlier. Tears in the toilets. When David Gingell took charge at nine, he had inherited a ratings problem that was going to take five years to fix. And even in 2010, overnight ratings mattered more than anything else in the TV industry. The Australian TV ratings environment is a quirky one. If the industry was starting afresh, it would be done in a different way. For starters, only 40 weeks per year counted as official ratings weeks. The summer weeks when families are on holiday and schedules are dominated by tennis and cricket don't count. There's also a fortnight's break for Easter. The Metro's rating system is run by OzTAM. The acronym comes from Australian Television Audience Measurement. And its phone number, 02 9929 7210, was carefully chosen back in the day, incorporating its three joint owners, nine, seven, and ten. Considering that the ratings are the key instrument in deciding where billions of dollars of advertising revenue go each year, the number of households covered by the system seems relatively small. Just 5,250 homes and about 10,000 people feed into the daily Austam survey. Sydney and Melbourne host the most people-metre monitoring boxes, with 1,475 in each city. Next comes Brisbane with 1,000, and there are 650 each in Perth and Adelaide. The idea is that the boxes are strategically placed to match the demographics of the wider population. Oztam uses those 5,250 households to guess the viewing habits of the 17.7 million people living in Australia's big five cities. When a household tunes into a particular show, the people meter records a sample of the audio and asks the viewer to press a button to indicate how many people are in the room. At 2 a.m. every day, the people meters send back the viewing data from the previous 24 hours. The audio data is then matched to a central repository of what went out on each channel to work out what each household was watching for every minute of the day. The next morning, the ratings are released to the TV networks and media agencies. The impact of this is that every morning, TV executives receive a stark performance review. As audiences have fragmented, the definition of a hit in the overnight ratings has changed. The advent of streamed catch-up viewing gradually replaced video recorders. With the exception of news and sport, far less viewing now occurs when a show first goes to air. By 2020, 1 million Metro viewers would be a strong debut. But a decade before, a good result was at least 1.5 million Metro viewers. David Ginge, or Ginge as he was almost universally known, is the closest that Australia has to television royalty. The first words Australians heard when the medium launched on the 16th of September 1956, good evening and welcome to television, were uttered by his father, Bruce Gingell. For all of his life, David Gingell had been connected to Nine and to the Packer family, who owned the network for most of its existence. He went to the all-male school Cranbrook in Sydney's eastern suburbs, at the same time as James Packer. Later, the privileged pair socialised together and both lived in Bondi. In 1999, Gingell joined Nine at James's request. He moved up within the organisation, and after Kerry Packer fired David Lackey in 2002, Gingell had been promoted to deputy CEO. On the one hand, 35 was young to get that job, but on the other... It was a role he'd been preparing for, for his whole life. It was also a terrible time to be involved in managing Nine, with politics swirling and Kerry Packer in his declining years. The volcanic Sam Chisholm and ruthless John Alexander running parent company PBL Media left little room for Gingell to succeed. He walked out in 2005 and took a TV job in Los Angeles running production company Granada, America. When Gingel came back to Nine in November 2007, he'd only been away for a couple of years, but it was going to take him a lot longer than that to turn around the network's fortunes. While Gingel was away, a lot had changed. Kerry Packer had died in 2005. Media personality Eddie Maguire was briefly made CEO before being demoted again 18 months later. The company was involved in a messy court case with former executive Mark Llewellyn, which introduced the word boning to the TV lexicon. And James Packer had started the process of selling the company at the top of the market to private equity firm CVC, just as his father had to Alan Bond. Many wrote off the network. In early 2007, former Nine staffer Gerald Stone declared the network dead in his book who killed Channel Nine. Nine had become a thoroughly unpleasant place to work. On camera, I later asked Mia Friedman the best thing about her brief time at the network as creative services director during that period. There was never a cue when I wanted to go for a cry in the toilets, she answered, summing up both the blokiness of the place and the bitterly political atmosphere. But Ginge's return in November 2007 changed the mood music inside the company. He'd insisted on clear reporting lines through to CVC, rather than John Alexander. Chisholm had already left the board. This meant that once again, the network was being run from its studios in Willoughby, rather than from PBL Media's Park Street offices. And it gave Ginger a shot at succeeding where Maguire had failed. When Ginger arrived, the content cupboard was close to bare. The network's programmers were forced to resort to desperate, short-term measures to prop up the ratings, airing anything that worked in high rotation until viewers got sick of it. During 2008, TV chef Gordon Ramsay was rarely off the air with replays of Kitchen Nightmares and Hell's Kitchen on constant rotation. At the 2009 Upfront held at the Willoughby Studios, Ginjal promised the audience, only half-jokingly, We've got about 400 hours of him to come. Echoing Ramsey's foul-mouthed style, he added, Thank fucking God for that. I might not be standing here if this bloke had not turned up. And in early 2009, when the viewers tired of Ramsey's kitchen nightmares being on three times a week, the network changed horses. It began to rely on the US-made Charlie Sheen comedy, Two and a Half Men, which had become one of the most crucial components of Nine's Warner Brothers studio output deal. It was airing up to three episodes a night. During August 2009, the Nine weekend schedule included Monday, 7pm, two and a half men. 7.30pm, two and a half men. Tuesday, 7pm, two and a half men. 8.30pm, two and a half men. 9pm, two and a half men. Wednesday, 7pm, two and a half men. 7.30pm, two and a half men. Thursday, 7pm, two and a half men. Friday, 7pm, two and a half men. Nine struggled to find something else that viewers would watch. Initially, the decision to expensively poach the British motoring show, Top Gear from SBS looked like a good move. In February, 2010, Thanks to an exhaustive marketing campaign, the new series of the show brought Nine a Metro audience of nearly 1.7 million viewers for the first episode. But that soon faded, and a local edition of Top Gear, which Nine had to commission as part of the deal, soon sank without a trace, with the first season getting disappointing ratings, and the second season dropped from the schedule before all the episodes had even been aired. Later that year... Nine tried to capitalise on British comedian, playwright and author Ben Elton's move to Fremantle in Western Australia with his Australian wife, musician Sophie Gare. The network commissioned the creator of Blackadder to host a live comedy variety show, Live from Planet Earth. Given Elton's roots as the host of the cult British variety show, Friday Night Live, which was credited with kicking off the rise of the 1980s alternative comedy scene, it was an exciting move. At least it was meant to be. It bombed. Airing on the 8th of February 2011, Live from Planet Earth was dead on arrival. The verdict was in even before the ratings arrived. Twitter was just becoming popular. Live from Planet Earth was the first show to be killed by it. The Twitterati panned predictable sketches featuring impressions of the likes of Beyonce, Lady Gaga and Nigella Lawson. And a lame interview with celebrity Ruby Rose, who attempted to explain to Nine's viewers what Twitter was. The social media verdict was a whole new dynamic for the TV networks. The first news stories about the poor reaction on Twitter appeared online even before the ratings came in the first episode of Life from Planet Earth, rated just 455,000. A defensive Elton took to the airwaves, telling the ABC's John Fane, I found it astonishing the feeding frenzy that's gone on this week. Maybe it's because people are looking at Nine, maybe it's all about Channel 9. They could have bought another set of repeats of two and a half men. And frankly, if we go down, that's probably what they'll do. The show was produced by Fremantle Media. A few months later, Fremantle's head of communications, Stephen Murphy, would tell the Umbrella 360 conference, the audience let us know very quickly that they were not necessarily enjoying the programme. It was quite a vicious attack. With so many journos monitoring the Twitter conversation, this dramatic response as we went to air set the agenda for the next two weeks. All the news outlets focused heavily on the Twitter conversation. In every interview, Ben was asked about the Twitter response. Twitter became unavoidable. Never before has a journo had so much immediate access and direct control to our audience. The second episode slumped to 384,000 viewers and the third brought in just 189,000. The next day, nine axed the show. The Warner Brothers output deal was also becoming less useful to Nine. The star of Two and a Half Men, Charlie Sheen, was dismissed in early 2011 after addiction issues and a months-long meltdown kept interrupting production and attempts to reboot the series with Ashton Kutcher as his replacement failed to attract viewers. Mike and Molly, a sitcom about an obese couple who meet at an Overeaters support group, was the next show to be created by Two and a Half Men, mastermind Chuck Law. But it tanked on Nine in February 2011, before being relegated to secondary channel Go. Anger Management, Sheen's next sitcom, would also later fail to rate for Nine, pulling in just over 1 million viewers for its first episode and falling away from there. Doug Anderson, TV critic for the Sydney Morning Herald, summed up the show in five words a programme about a dickhead. Tapping into the Twitter zeitgeist didn't work either. The same month saw the debut of Shit My Dad Says on Nine. Based on a popular Twitter account, the comedy starred Star Trek's William Shatner. The network promoted it heavily, and it debuted on the 30th of February with 1.183 million viewers. Again, it faded fast, falling to 803,000 within a fortnight. It was cancelled in the US after just one season. In March 2011, Nine's attempts to build a new game show franchise also failed. Using an overseas format, Million Dollar Drop was hosted by Eddie Maguire and placed in a prime 8.30pm Monday slot. It featured two couples competing to retain as much of a million dollar prize fund as possible. To give Million Dollar Drop the best chance of success, Nine axed the already fading Shit My Dad Says and scheduled two of its precious last Charlie Sheen episodes of Two and a Half Men immediately before Million Dollar Drop. It was a million dollar flop, debuting with 933,000 and not even making it into the top 10 shows of the night. Nine appeared to be bereft of hit ideas, leaning heavily on its failed CEO, Maguire, who was already presenting a cut-down version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, called Millionaire Seat. Nine also briefly revived This Is Your Life in 2011, again hosted by Maguire. It was axed after four episodes. And 2012 started just as badly for Nine, although it kept on trying. Next, it had a go in the reality genre with an attempt to create a twist on Ten's weight loss show, The Biggest Loser. Excess Baggage featured celebrities trying to lose weight. The network did not seem to have moved on from assuming that viewers would still watch anything so long as it was on Nine and was marketed aggressively. The lineup was decidedly B-list, including Britney Spears' ex-husband, Kevin Federline, Paparazzo Darren Lyons and Beaconsfield mine collapse survivor Brant Webb. Nine promoted the show hard with ads on the side of what seemed like every bus in the country, proclaiming, "The wait is over." In a strategy known as stripping, the show was due to run at seven p.m. every weeknight. When stripping works, as it had done for ten with MasterChef, viewers returning to a show every night builds momentum. But it's risky, as stripping creates a huge hole when a show fails. Excess Baggage debuted on 30th January 2012 to a disappointing 880,000 Metro viewers, before sinking to 625,000 for the second episode. Nine was forced to bump the show to Digital Channel Go, with the network racing to get those embarrassing bus posters down as quickly as possible. It was another bad start to a ratings year for the network. With 9 and 10 struggling, it was starting to look like 2012 was going to be another year of seven ratings dominance. As Ginjal put it later, momentum is harder to get than it is to go away. It's harder to get up the hill than it is to go down the other side. The punters have no remorse and no loyalty. Brussels sprouts for breakfast. Behind the scenes, the pieces were falling into place for the show that would finally turn around Nine's fortunes. Adrian Swift, an avuncular sports journalist turned TV executive, had recently returned to Australia after a decade overseas. Early in his career, he'd worked on the Sydney Morning Herald and at SBS and Nine Network as a journalist and presenter, before moving into production roles at SBS and Nine, where he was producer of the then new travel show, Getaway. His time in London had also given him exposure to the world of reality television, including a stint at production company Endemol, creator of Big Brother. Back in Australia, Swift was sharing an office space in Artarman, close to Nine's Willoughby headquarters, with former Nine Network legal counsel, Hugh Marks, who now owns strategic advice business, Media Venture Partners. Swift had been bitten by the branded entertainment bug. Branded entertainment was the hot new fad in advertising, the idea that rather than paying for ads, big brands could instead fund programming content that would be entertaining enough that the public would want to watch it, even if the brand was integrated into the content. But while the concept had taken off in London, adoption was slow in the smaller, more cautious media market of Australia. Then Nine's director of television, Michael Healy, got in touch. Healy rang me and said, would I come back to Nine? I wasn't sure that Nine was such a good career move, but I talked it over with Hugh and he said I should take it. I think they're back on the up, recalls Swift. Healy had a mission in mind for Swift. The company had just bought the rights to a new reality talent contest called The Voice. It had a few twists on traditional talent contests. For starters, the celebrity judges wouldn't be called judges. They'd be coaches. And the show would begin with blind auditions where the coaches would not see the contestants until they pressed a big red button to turn their chair to face them. Swift was intrigued enough by the job opportunity to agree to take a flight to Los Angeles to see the US edition of the show being recorded. For the most part, Australia's TV networks, don't make their entertainment shows themselves. They outsource them to production companies that are aligned to the owner of a particular content format. Shine Australia was going to make The Voice. Swift made the trip to Los Angeles with Mark Fennessy. Brothers Mark and Carl Fennessy were the local bosses of Shine and were the people to go to if a network wanted to give a new format the maximum chance of succeeding. Mark Fennessy had worked as an executive producer at Nine and been head of MTV Australia at the age of 26. The brothers had been creating hits for years, initially through their own company, Crackerjack. They'd later merged this with Grundy Television to form Fremantle Media Australia and had created hits like MasterChef, The Biggest Loser and The Farmer Wants a Wife. The run of success had then continued when they switched teams and launched the Australian outpost of Shine, the production company founded by Rupert Murdoch's daughter, Elizabeth. The first series of the US version of The Voice was being filmed at the giant Warner Brothers studio lot in Burbank. Swift and Fennessy sat in the audience. The US judges included Adam Levine of Maroon 5 and singer Christine Aguilera. We sit there, and the audience are going nuts. The first act came on, and I looked at Fennessy, and he looked at me, and I said, this is fucking sensational, says Swift. Despite being new to working on the genre known in the industry as a shiny floor show, Swift instantly became a believer in doing a version of The Voice for Australia. He agreed to rejoin Nine as Director of Development in July 2011. The week he joined, Nine announced the acquisition. The outside world was skeptical that it would work. Nine was coming off the back of miss after miss and television already seemed to have too many talent contests. The first comment underneath the Mumbrella article about Nine's new commission from disbelief was to the point. If the voice works, I'll start eating alfalfa and Brussels sprouts for breakfast. An early challenge for Swift and his colleagues was securing the celebrity coaches who made up a multi-million dollar component of the show budget. The challenge was to get the right mix of personalities among the four. That involved the delicate diplomatic manoeuvre of sanding out the agents of more celebrities than there will be room for. You end up offending everyone on your first and second pass, observes Swift. The negotiation was more complex than simply offering a giant cheque. The network presented the show as an opportunity for the celebrities to build interest in their own tours, and for further money-making opportunities with sponsor tie-ins. It helped that music sales had tanked, and touring was now the key source of musicians' income. We created an ecosystem for them and offered a minimum guarantee, says Swift. In effect, Nine bet that sponsors would be interested in paying the celebrities to do endorsements as part of their commercial integration into the show. And it promised the celebrities to make good on any shortfall. The production locked in a credible lineup, country singer Keith Urban, good Charlotte singer, Joel Madden, British singer Seal, and Australian performer, Delta Goodrum. The show was filmed in front of a live audience at the 3,000 square metre Stage 2 of Fox Studios in Sydney. The largest studio at the facility, Stage 2, was where Mad Max, The Great Gatsby and The Matrix were shot. Says Swift, I still remember the tingle I got when the first chair started to turn. Now it was just a matter of hoping that viewers would watch. The problem for a TV network that is struggling in the ratings is that it finds itself trapped in a vicious circle. When there are smaller audiences watching, there are fewer viewers who will see a promotion for the next show. And Nine had seen so many misses, there was no guarantee that The Voice would rate well if viewers did not know about it. In turn, that makes it harder to persuade sponsors to back a new show. The network went into marketing overdrive. It was impossible to miss the outdoor ads in every capital city. There were billboards everywhere. Each TV Ratings Week begins on a Sunday in Australia, and the week beginning 15th of April 2012 was a massive one for the industry. Coming immediately after the Easter holidays, Ratings Mega Week would see nine airing the Logies TV Awards, the return of home Renault Challenge The Block, and the second season of The Celebrity Apprentice. Seven, which was winning the ratings for the year to date, kicked off its new season of its own shiny floor show, Dancing with the Stars, and just for good measure, threw in a new season of Australia's Got Talent that week too. In the face of the Seven and Nine Smackdown, Ten opted to hold back its new season of MasterChef for another couple of weeks. In the Nine offices, the staff held a sweepstake, on how The Voice would do in the ratings in its Sunday night slot. Perhaps trying to project positivity to his team, Swift opted for an optimistic 1.8 million Metro viewers. Anything above 1.5 million would have been good, but that was anything but certain. On the Monday morning, Swift went to Michael Healy's office to wait for the ratings to come in. It had been a good evening for the network the night before. Comedian Hamish Blake had won the Gold Logie as the most popular personality of the year for his appearance in Nine's Hamish and Andy's Gap Year. And Gap Year had also won most popular light entertainment programme. The Block had won Best Reality Show and the Nine News coverage of the Queensland floods had also been recognised. Finally, the email arrived. The ratings were massive. The show averaged 2.177 million Metro viewers. Nine was back from the wilderness. Healy and Swift were not yet to know it, but those first night ratings were just the beginning. By the end of the year, six episodes of The Voice would be among the top 20 most watched shows of 2012. The final episode which saw Carice Eden from Team Seal crowned as the winner, was Australia's most-watched television show of the year, narrowly outrating Seven's coverage of the AFL Grand Final between Hawthorne and Sydney. For Swift and Healy, the relief was too much. Swift recalls, We literally fell into each other's arms, sobbing. The Chase While Nine's programmers were working through the on-air turnaround in 2012, boss David Gingell had plenty to keep him occupied behind the scenes too. CVC Capital Partners' deal to buy Nine from the Packers at the top of the market six years earlier had left the company weighed down with debt. James Packer had timed his 2006 exit almost perfectly. The family company PBL put up for sale half of its stakes in nine ACP magazines, nine MSN, the company's joint venture with Microsoft, and its share of car sales. CVC had paid $4.54 billion in October 2006. And in June 2007, PBL had sold another 25% to CVC for $515 million. By the time the 2008 GFC had wiped out media valuations, Packer wrote off the final 25% as having zero value. Nonetheless, he'd come out well ahead. For CVC, it was a disaster. The company had put up $1.9 billion of its own money for the deal, along with raising $3.4 billion of debt, which was now threatening to take down nine. With profitability falling thanks to the GFC, it began to look increasingly unlikely that Nine could afford to pay interest on the debt, let alone persuade the banks to roll it over when it came due in 2013. Instead, the lenders, including hedge funds, Apollo Global Management and Oaktree Capital, leaned on CVC to swap the debt for stakes in Nine. In what turned out to be a final manoeuvre, in September 2012, CVC sold ACP magazines to the German publishing house, Bauer Media. ACP was Australia's biggest magazine company, with famous titles including Australian Women's Weekly, Cleo, Woman's Day, Dolly, Take Five, Australian House and Garden, Gourmet Traveller and Zoo Weekly. In the previous financial year, ACP had made a profit of $55 million. The sale price of $525 million was the best CVC could do, considering ACP's profits had contributed $1.75 billion of the company's valuation when it had bought it in 2006. It was the end of a decades-long connection between Nine and the magazine publisher. But it made good business sense for CBC. It was a good price, but aside from this, perceptions about the fading value of print would have made Nine look less attractive to future investors if it had stuck with ACP. Nonetheless, by October 2012, Nine was teetering on the brink of administration. With only a handful of months until the lender's $3.3 billion was due, Gingel was running out of time. It was a stressful period. He would later observe, I do worry about Channel 9 24-7. It's something that's been part of my life, my whole life. My dad started it. The unrelentingness gets to you, but at the same time, I thrive on it. I'm an addict to this. The Crunch came in a series of meetings with the lenders in mid-October. To contemplate a company that was making great money, that had the history and brand of Channel 9 be put into bankruptcy because of difference between two parties who didn't give a shit about it. I wouldn't do that to my staff, Gingell recalled when he spoke at the Mumbrella 360 conference a few months later. Oaktree and Apollo could see I wasn't going to just roll over and do a deal to put the thing into what they called a light touch insolvency. It's not a light touch as far as I'm concerned. It's an embarrassment and embarrassments aren't what you put your staff through. On Wednesday, the 17th of October, a beaming Ginjo stepped onto George Street in Sydney to talk to news crews waiting on the street. The deal had been done. The $3.3 billion debt would be wiped clean, and the hedge funds would now own the network. We have a fully capitalised business, Ginjo told the journalists. All those doomsayers out there are going to have to eat their words. We've never had a more powerful balance sheet. We're ready to rock and roll for next year. Network Television The end of Nine's debt crisis gave the company impetus to tidy up some relatively expensive loose ends. First on the agenda were the company's Metro affiliates, Until 2013, viewers watching nine shows in Adelaide and Perth were watching them on stations owned by Wynn Corporation, the Wollongong-founded regional media company owned by Bruce Gordon since 1979. The way that affiliate deals work is that regional broadcasters share an agreed percentage of their annual advertising revenues in exchange for being able to rebroadcast the network's shows. In July 2013, Nine bought Nine Adelaide from Wynn and followed up in September by buying Nine Perth. It paid $139.5 million for the South Australian station and $223.2 million for the West Australian station. Like Seven and Ten, Nine now had a five-city network to call its own. And there were deals to unwind too. Media partnerships sometimes have unintended consequences, none more so than the deals that saw nine and seven tie up with digital giants, Microsoft and Yahoo. The digital joint ventures were 9MSM, which had kicked off in 1997 and Yahoo seven, which had launched in 2006. Both arrangements had the same rationale Nine and Seven had media market dominance and reach, while Microsoft and Yahoo were at the cutting edges of digital advertising technology. Together, the two types of organisation would be stronger. To an extent, that was true, particularly when there was a clear divide between digital and analogue media. But the terms of the deal had hampered how both Nine and Seven prepared their magazines and TV assets for the coming digital disruption. Like Nine's common ownership with ACP magazines, Seven owned Pacific magazines, and the Nine MSN and Yahoo! Seven deals meant that all the digital knowledge stayed outside of the magazine teams. Content would be aggregated across the two portals, and there would be no opportunity to build a digital following for individual magazine brands. Similarly, when it dawned on nine and seven that soon they'd want to stream their TV content online, they realized that they'd be sharing half of the upside with their Microsoft and Yahoo partners. Ginja was first to cut the ties. With a team of nine executives, he flew to Microsoft's headquarters in Seattle in September, 2013, to negotiate an end to the partnership. The separation was announced the next month with Nine Entertainment Co taking control of Nine MSN. said in the announcement, it strengthens the platform for NEC's growing digital video business and ultimately allows us to control 100% of our digital future. Nine paid Microsoft $40 million. To attain an independent video streaming future, it was a bargain divorce. Gingell later summed up the changes in a press release. We're no longer just a television network on the east coast of Australia, but a diverse national digital media, entertainment and events company. And Gingell's frenetic year of deal-making was not quite done. It was time to list nine on the ASX. The company launched its prospectus on the 4th of November 2013, Listed with the ticker code NEC, Nine Entertainment Co, hit the ASX on 6th of December, with a market capitalisation of $1.93 billion. The float cleared the debt Nine had raised to buy out Microsoft, as well as the Adelaide and Perth stations. Now, it was time to plan for the future. The Stan Plan Dubai can be a trap for Australian executives. The tax-free, islam Light Middle East meets West Emirate on the toe of the Arabian Peninsula is a tempting career stopover. The demand for Western business expertise across the region means big salaries and a way of life for expats that will be difficult to afford back home. But stay away too long... And it can be impossible to break back into Australian business networks once you are forgotten. There are plenty of Australian execs who came home after years of being a big deal in Dubai, only to struggle to find a LinkedIn title more meaningful than consultant. Mike Sneesby had no intention of making that mistake. With an engineering background, Sneasby had been one of a wave of telco executives who moved over to media as the business world became obsessed with convergence in the mid-2000s. For a while, everybody believed that telcos would soon become media companies and vice versa. After three years with Optus, Sneasby had spent three years at 9MSM as Director of Strategy and Business Development. But with no sign that 9MSN's then CEO, Joe Pollard, had any plans to move on, Sneezeby's path to promotion was blocked. So he'd taken a gig in Dubai, working for young video company, Integral, which was focusing on the growing ability to stream TV content over the internet, using what was known as internet protocol television. Sneezeby was Integral's vice president of IPTV. It was a role that saw him begin to build connections with the Hollywood studios. Sneesby had departed on good terms with Nine and stayed in touch with Gingel and Director of Strategy and Digital, David Coleman. He says, I told David Coleman and Ginge that in a couple of years, I'd like to come back and lead a digital opportunity. Two years to the day, after resigning from Nine MSN, Sneesby recalls taking a phone call. At the time, he was standing next to the swimming pool, looking out to the Palm Jumeirah, the bizarre man-made real estate island on the edge of the Persian Gulf. Coleman rings and says, we'd like you to come back, we've got something for you. Sneasby's return was announced in December 2011. His first job was to oversee the exit from 9MSN's flirtation with group buying, which we'll come to later, in the form of Qudo. By the time the Kudo sale was completed in July 2013, a much bigger task was on Sneezeby's plate. It was clear that disruption and opportunity was well on the way for the TV industry, but nobody quite knew which way the technology would go. One new model was that offered in the US by Hulu, which streamed TV content mostly for free, supported by advertising. Launched in 2007, initially as a joint venture between News Corp and NBC Universal, Hulu had grown to the point where it also offered premium subscriptions to access ad-free content. There were regular rumours that Hulu executives had been in Australia looking for partners for a local launch. Meanwhile, the ABC's managing director, Mark Scott, had seen his attempts to bring the networks together to offer a streaming service rebuffed. In a speech in 2012, he revealed that he had offered the technology underpinning the ABC's popular iView streaming service to create a new joint offering. It would have been a great defensive play for when a Hulu actually lands here to offer seamless broadband viewing with fresh and archived global content, Scott said in that speech. Then there was TiVo, also out of the US. The TiVo service was based on a set-top box. Its central function was as a digital video recorder, but it also allowed content downloads over the internet. Seven had signed up for an exclusive license to market and distribute the TiVo boxes in Australia. But Seven vetoed what had been one of the TiVo box's killer applications in the US – It refused to allow a 30-second skip function to help viewers fast-forward through the ads. It was the same thing Kerry Packer had done in the early days of Foxtel with the IQ box. As usual for broadcast television, the advertisers were prioritised over the viewers. The $699 TiVo box was also incompatible with Foxtel shows, which meant that pay TV subscribers were unlikely to be potential customers. Seven had also experimented with Fango, a companion app it launched in November 2011 in the hope that viewers would use the app to talk to each other while they were watching their favourite shows. It gave up on the idea three years later, accepting that viewers were choosing to do that on Twitter and Facebook instead. Another player was Fetch TV, mostly owned by Malaysian media company Astro, launched in 2010, based around a set-top box capable of recording shows, but more importantly, streaming subscription content via IPTV. The big beast everybody was waiting on was Netflix, which had been streaming to US audiences since 2007 digital savvy australians were already hiding their location with vpn services to sign up to the us netflix which included original content such as political thriller house of cards and prison drama orange is the new black netflix had already expanded to more than a dozen countries the only thing that appeared to be delaying it from launching in australia was concern over whether the country's poor internet speed would cope with video streaming. Ginger was convinced that there was a rapidly closing window for another Australian player to get in before Netflix. He dropped a hint on his thinking during his June 2013 Mumbrella 360 conference keynote, telling the audience, Channel 9 has to set itself a goal that in a number of years is getting paid for some of its content. Sneesby started working on a business plan in August 2013 under the working name of Streamco. He was convinced that the only way to succeed was to invest in a big way, not just in the right streaming technology, but in having major content deals from day one. Even given Nine's ASX float, the scale of the investment made it clear that the company would need to find a partner to do Streamco. As the other big TV beast, Seven West Media made sense as a partner. The deal looked likely to happen. Sneezebeep, who had worked in joint ventures before, understood the importance of managing the politics between owners. He made sure it wasn't culturally dominated by Nine. I picked up my laptop and went to Seven and worked out of whatever office was spare. Seven had his own internal issues though. Tim Warner, who had by then emerged as CEO after the exit of Warburton, wanted to do the deal. But proprietor Kerry Stokes was also talking to the News Corp-aligned Foxtel about a partnership in its film streaming service, Presto, which had launched in September 2013. Having finally got back on good terms with News Corp after the C7 battle and the James Warburton poaching, Stokes was concerned about offending the Murdoch's if he went with the nine joint venture instead. And the Seven was also uneasy about Sneezebee's aggressive investment plans, arguing for less upfront spending until the customer base grew. But Sneezebee's view was that the only way to bring in a decent audience was to invest in strong content from the beginning, rather than increasing spending only as subscriptions grew. We knew we were going to be competing with major international platforms, says Sneezeby. Ginge supported the view that you don't do these things by halves. With the conversation with Seven bogged down, Ginge told Sneezeby to walk away from Seven and begin to look elsewhere for a partner. They approached Greg Highwood of Fairfax Media. The timing was good. In December 2013, Fairfax had sold its online holiday rental business, Stays, Given the coming Airbnb phenomenon, it was a well-timed sale. Highwood was impressed by Sneasby's business plan. Gingell called and asked, did we want it? It was $50 million down. We'd just got $200 million for stays, and we'd only expected $150 million. So we were able to do it, recalls Highwood. The deal was announced on the 27th of August 2014. Nine and Fairfax would each put up $50 million. Gingell and Highwood would sit on the board and the company would be run independently from its own offices in Sydney. By then, the content deals and all-important technology infrastructure for Streamco were well on the way. Streamco was publicly revealed as Stan in November 2014. Industry legend has it that the name Stan came from the amalgam of 7, 10 and 9 but Sneezeby insists that's not the case. The strategy was to go for a short, memorable name that had nothing to do with the various flicks that were doing battle, including Netflix, Easy flicks, and Quick Flicks. The brand needed to stand for simplicity, pricing transparency and entertainment. The first choice was Ned, with a nod to Australian outlaw Ned Kelly. But the owner of the trademark wouldn't sell, so Stan, it was. The next month saw Seven confirm it was getting into bed with Foxtel to launch an expanded Presto service, which would see TV content added to the existing film offering. It became a three-way launch race between Stan, Presto and Netflix. It was just about a dead heat to get into the market. Presto TV launched on 18th of January, 2015. Stan followed a week later, kicking off on Australia Day. Netflix finally flicked the switch on the 24th of March. The streaming wars were about to unmake the television landscape. That was the latest chapter of my narration of my book, Media Unmade. You can buy the book online and at all good bookstores. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, if you want to hear all future chapters, you'll need to be a paying subscriber of Unmade. You can sign up at unmade.media. That's the URL, simply unmade.media. Once you do, it only takes a couple of clicks to add the paid-for feed to the podcast app of your choice. The book was written and recorded in Northwest Tasmania on the land of the Palawa people. This podcast is produced with the enthusiastic help of Abe's Audio. For voiceovers and audio production, from corporate to commercial, go to abesaudio.com.au. I'll be back with the next chapter soon. Toodle pip.